welcome to Out of the Box Radio with me, your host, Christine Blasdale. Out of the Box Radio is a weekly podcast of audible ear candy dedicated to bringing a fresh perspective on this thing that we call life. And each and every week, we're going to be diving into the topics that matter most with lively conversations on issues such as health, wellness, and transformational healing, all with the goal of creating a better world and becoming a happier human being. I will be your tour guide for this epic adventure, and each and every week we're going to be embarking on a journey with the ultimate goal being transformation to our highest potential. And now, let's get out of the box. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Out of the Box with Christine. I am your host, Christine Blasdale, and I am so very happy about today's show. We're bringing back a special guest that has been, it's been a couple of years, I believe. Uh, yeah. Victoria Valentino is my guest today. And in addition to being a Cosby, a Cosby survivor who has been such a fierce advocate for sexual assault victims, really globally, she has also been a victim empowerment speaker. She's an author. She also ha- is a songwriter as well. And she was, uh, she was Miss September 1963, a-, a year before I came into the world. But she's just one of my favorite people on the whole planet and really a master teacher t- uh, to me. Uh, she's very, very close to my heart. So I want to welcome back the wonderful Victoria Valentino to Out of the Box with Christine. Welcome back, darling. Oh, Christine, thank you so much. I'm really so happy to be here. Thank you, and I'm honored by your introduction. Well, you you are. You're you're one of my very favorite people, and I just think that you are one of probably the most courageous and strongest women that I know, and I'm hoping that your story and your struggle, but your triumphs as well, will inspire women all around the world who have, maybe they haven't gone through the same thing that you have, but they have experienced some trauma in their life. And to know that, that there's so much more after that and to hold people accountable who harm us. So thank you again for, for joining us and for sharing your story with us as well. Well, you know, the thing about uh, going public is that at first you feel all of the, all of the PTSD symptoms, you know, they, they trigger all this weird stuff and you're going, my God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And you, you don't realize that it's a symptom of PTSD, like attention deficit. You know, you sit down, you can't, you can't finish any of the projects that you were working on so diligently before you opened your mouth and, and, you know, blew your cover. (laughs) And then uh, Carolyn Heldman, who is a PhD in political science, and she was our co-chair with Aerosol and Rape Statute of Limitations and strategized and coordinated our uh, getting our bill passed, rallying and testifying in the Senate Committee on Public Safety in Sacramento that effectively uh, abolished the statute of limitations on rape and sexual assault. And I was complaining to her. I was saying, I don't know what's wrong with me. You know, I just, I, 
all the projects, I mean, I was like every night, I was crocheting an entire muffler, you know, getting ready for Christmas. You know, I was accomplishing all these things. I was doing my Buddha boxes and, you know, all of the different things that I was doing and following through and completing. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't sit still. I was standing up. I'd walk around the house. I'd, you know, do all of this weird stuff. And she said, no, 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 that is PTSD ADD. That is a legitimate symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I realized that all of this stuff that I'd been holding in for years and years, not that I, I didn't ever talk about being raped, but I didn't talk about Cosby raping me. I just let everybody know that he was an ass and, uh, you know, that I had had some kind of an encounter with him and I managed to, you know, turn it into some little story that I could tell with a bit of panache in which I wasn't as humiliated and mortified and destroyed as in fact I was. Um, but once I started talking about all of this stuff, it really opened up a Pandora's box, if you will, of yeah. all of the times. I'm a multi-rape survivor. I'm a trafficking survivor. Uh, we talked about um, me being Playboy's Miss September 1963. I was trafficked for three months by my, who I thought was my husband, um, after I became a playmate. He held my children hostage. He beat me. He starved me and sent me out and marketed me to iconic stars in the film industry, people that you would be horrified uh, to know about and what their proclivities were. And, you know, some sadomasochistic, uh, you know, icons that the whole world holds in self-esteem, in esteem. In fact, one of them I was seeing on TV as they were honoring him, all of the, the comedians of the world, you know, going to the USA across, the, USO across the world, being the, the symbol of all America, you know. And, wow. Uh, and I knew all the dirty underbelly, you know, and, and because... I had gotten raped three times in New York in my high school year when I was away at private school at the professional children's school. I never talked about it, but I flirted with a lot of razor blades. And um, my parents never understood what happened, not that they ever asked, nor did I ever tell. And they made assumptions about what had happened with me and treated me as did the entire family for the rest of their lives, with these misunderstandings. Uh, I didn't find out until after my parents died that my parents had been told that I lived in a brothel in my senior year of high school in Manhattan, which is something I, you know, I had no idea about. And I thought that the whole reason they were angry was because I was ditching school and I had lost my virginity. So those were the things I was defending myself against. And so then they shipped me out to my grandma in West Hollywood to be a good girl. And I thought I was going for the summer, only I got dumped. 
And so I went into this big depression, summer of 61, I was 18, and got involved with a guy who, um, he was Afro-Cuban, he was a drummer, but what I didn't understand was he was a con man. And he saw my beautiful clothes, my good jewelry and everything, and knew that I was getting an inheritance when I was 21, and hooked up with me. He saw that I was lost and depressed, you know, typical story. Right. And, uh, and he had the idea with another photographer that I was going to be a Playboy centerfold. It was a magazine I had never heard of. I'd never seen a pinup magazine in my life. And I thought I was taking these pictures for my husband because we went to Baja, California to get married. And I didn't know that it wasn't legal in this country unless you registered it in this country. He knew, and he knew that I was traditional and naive enough to believe that I had to do the traditional wife thing and turn over my money to my oh. husband, which I did. My mother always told me, honey, I'm terrible at arithmetic, and so will you be, but don't worry. Your husband, Your husband all will of take that. care of it. Right. Yeah. Right. And Which so, is, so many young girls were told. Exactly. And so at 18 and 19, that's exactly what I did. And I thought these pictures were to advance his career as an aspiring photographer, not having any idea that being a centerfold in Playboy was going to be a big deal. It only paid $1,000 of which I, not, I, I never saw one penny. Oh. I think I got a ruffled white lace blouse, a little short black skirt, some new flip-flops, and a new bra. Wow. And how, so how long were you, were you with this uh, person? Well, two years. I managed to escape, but when I did try to escape, he caught me. I was leaving with the baby i had to leave his two children who that was one of the ways that he always controlled the all of the women because i was not the only one i think he must have had a root you know and um he would take the children his children and give them to you to be the mother and make you feel responsible and then he'd go out for cigarettes and be gone for two weeks and leave you alone with the children and no money, and there you would be, you know, panhandling or starving or begging Altadena Dairy <laughs> to extend your credit one more week, you know, so wow. that you could just eat. And so was so he, he, and was he also, was he, was he was the one that was also trafficking you to these yeah. celebrities, to yeah. these Hollywood. It sounds like Epst it sounds like the whole Epstein thing, and I know that you must you must have been triggered as as the news about Epstein and and all of the the trauma that his victims. Although now that he quote unquote air quotes died, right? <laughs> yeah. There's nothing. Nobody's talking about it anymore, and it's very strange to me. I know the news cycle changes fast, but I mean it's just very strange to me that. We don't hear anything anymore, but I know well, that you must have been triggered by that. I was totally triggered, but I already knew a lot about Epstein through um, 
Well, when we were at Montgomery County Courthouse going through all of Cosby's trials, the DA, Kevin Steele's father, who is an attorney from Florida, he was at every trial every single day, a true American statesman and a, a wonderful gentleman, kind elder statesman. And he and I talked a lot and became, I thought, pretty close during that time. Everybody adored him. He was just integrity filled in every way. And he had been spending years trying to get Epstein. And so I found out a lot of dirt on Epstein long before Epstein got actually arrested and indicted the last time and put in prison. And I knew the story about how Trump had visited his uh, the island, Lo the Lolita Express yes. and his mansion. I knew all of that story about how um, this 13-year-old girl had been tied to the headboard of the bed and her virginity taken by Trump. And he had raped her four times and Epstein slapped her around because he was angry that she allowed Trump to take her virginity. That's the backstory. Now, if you recall during the 2016 campaign, she, as an older woman now, not old, old, but I, I don't know, she's in her late 20s or early 30s or something. She and the girl who was the procurer, who was, I think, 14. Oh, my God. Who witnessed all of this. They were suing Trump during the campaign and received so many death threats that she was so terrified that she withdrew her lawsuit. So those of us who had heard all of the backstories knew what had happened up front. You know, we got it. So when Epstein came out, it was like, yeah, great. But then when I heard he hanged himself, I didn't believe it for a minute. No. Not a hot New York minute. No, because the connections and the flow of young girls that he was able to give access to these uh, politicians and celebrities and anybody that has money um, was so vast and so much, they would never, ever uh, choke off that supply chain, ever. No, they would choke off Epstein as quickly yeah. as possible. And I think that's what they did. Maybe some of the people in the Midwest out of the big city who are not familiar with all of this, the machinations of this element of society, maybe they believe because they live a more honest life. Yeah. And they, like me, when I was 18, wanted to believe the best in people and couldn't imagine couldn't imagine the negativity and the evil that is truly out there. Uh, you know, I did a keynote speech in Green Bay, Wisconsin in uh, the end of April this year. And um, one of the speakers that was warming up to my keynote speech, she was, I think, with ABC, a local television station. And she was telling all of the people in the audience about teaching your children right and wrong. 
And when I heard that, I, it wasn't that I disagreed. I do agree, totally. However, we also have to teach our children to understand that not everybody has the same moral compass. And so when we go into a situation with people, we want to believe that they have the same set of standards we do, but they do not. You see, that's the whole deal. And that's what makes us sitting ducks. You know, we don't totally. want to make we don't want to make kids suspicious and untrusting, but we do need to make them savvy, because we have people like Cosby and, frankly, like Trump, who are sociopaths. They have no moral compass. Now, for a person who is guided by their integrity and their morality, and who grew up with the golden rule, that's hard to conceive of how do you you can't imagine not having an internal guide that tells you when things are wrong or or, right. or you can't imagine anyone having the absolute lack of empathy absolutely it it, it goes against everything that we are it, it you know seeing um someone on the side of the road who needs help your, your automatic instinct is to help them Seeing a young child that's lost, your automatic instinct is to find their parents and get them back to safety. But these are people that don't have empathy. They lack it. So if they saw a lost child, it's an opportunity for them to abuse, to torture, whatever it is that, that, that feeds into their, their power, their strength. I don't know. what. It, I, like I said, I can't well, relate because I don't know how the hell they think, but it is... They're, these are very dangerous people that need to be off the planet. I well, yeah, absolutely. And and somewhere I, I read an article, and I wish I could remember what it was because I'd like to go back and read it again or find out what the, the uh, research source was. But they talked about um, that sociopathic behavior can be genetic. Yes. And that they can yes. determine it through an amniocentesis during pregnancy, which is freaky to me. I mean, I had always thought, I'd always thought that some terrible trauma happened to a child early on pre-memory, and that was what made them split off psychologically to protect their inner child. You know, for instance, um, I had read somebody, when I first went public about Cosby, somebody had uh, sent me an, an excerpt from one of his books, and it told a story about when he was a little boy, about four, and his father came home drinking, raging, beating the, the crap out of his mother, and she wound up being unconscious, and he, at four years old, somehow managed to drag her out in the backyard or something, and he tried to give her mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation, and there was this moment of aha for me, and I thought, maybe this is when he changed. Maybe this is what shut him down, and because what he was diagnosed with was somnophilia, a.k.a. Sleeping Beauty Syndrome. You know, the kiss that brings Sleeping Beauty back to life. Mm -hmm. But somehow, you know, and so I thought, well, that would make sense, you know, that he could somehow have warped that, morphed that in over time into this weird fetish, you know, trying to bring 
his mother back to life after you know such terrible trauma but somehow or another he became the bad guy and the good guy all mixed in he right. was the abusive father and he was the savior son right and and for folks too who don't um who don't know because um we, we i want to get an update on of course on the whole cosby uh the case and the survivors but you have said once and um in our first interview and i'll make sure that we uh, attach the first interview that we had so this will be part two of our series I'll make sure that I have that attached to this uh, show. Oh, fantastic. You, you had said once that you believe that Bill Cosby is one of the most prolific serial rapists of our time. And for folks, again, because the news cycle goes so fast and they still are remembering Cosby as the, this great dad Cosby on television. Right. Um, if you can set the record straight, if you will, about Mr. Bill Cosby. Um, and his very, very long trail of, of, of crimes against humanity, as far as I'm concerned. Well, absolutely. I think some of the earliest recorded uh, drugging and raping uh, victims uh, were from the 60s. I think I was, I think the 16th that came out in 2014, but way back, I, I was one of the earlier uh, known victims anyway, and I'm sure there were a whole bunch of other ones that never were known. Um, so basically, over the years, his drugging became more sophisticated as the drugs became more sophisticated. He started out with just putting a pill by your wine glass or telling you it was Benadryl or telling you it was an allergy pill or this would help your cold. It was like Sudafed or something. And because his grooming process was such, like all serial rapists, serial murderers they have a grooming process in which they 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 begin to get your trust but they never just get your trust they usually if possible get your family's trust or your friends trust they do something to make it almost impossible for you to speak out against them because who would believe you right they'll make you they'll do something wonderful for your family They'll give your kid's sister a scholarship. Um, they'll, you know, they'll do these things. They'll just ingratiate themselves into your family. So everybody's going, oh, isn't he wonderful? He's the best thing. <gasps> the best. So then when you say, but wait, he, he drugged and raped me. They'll go, oh, you know, just like my mother used to say when, one of their friends who used to be called uncles in the fifties, you know, would yeah. stick his tongue down my throat in the hallway outside of the kitchen when I was getting my mug of milk to go upstairs to bed when I was a, a kid, you know, and my mother would say, well, darling, you just seem to attract that kind of attention. Wow. Oh, yeah. So Jesus. typical, typical slut shaming, you know, typical victim blaming, you know, it's your fault. It's your and fault. Also, you looked so sexy at the age of five in your, in yeah, your, right. in your, in your jammies and your milk cup. Mm -hmm. Or 12 or 14, you know, 
it didn't matter. It was your fault somehow. So, yeah. So back to, back to Cosby, he did the same kind of thing and society blamed the victim. You know, it's the whole, what was she wearing thing? You know, why did she go out with a married man? And I got that even recently, somebody was in fact, well, in fact, it was somebody very close to me, wow. which I was very upset by. Uh, she was upset with me because she knew Cosby. And, and but, but after hearing your story, I mean, because first of it, all, let's, uh, and let's put it in context too. That that night, that and and you don't have to go into detail. I know it's I know it's extremely yeah. painful. You don't have to go into detail on this show. People, if they if they they can listen to the first program for that. But when this whole thing had happened, when you encountered him, and you were with a a, a friend, right? A, a roommate. A roommate. Mm -hmm. You An were actress. already suffering. You you had the greatest loss in your life, which was your your child. My child. And. You were in a in a state of just absolute um, pain and suffering, and this friend was encouraging you to you know come on get out. You, I know you had you know you had been um, not wanting to do of course like you know any any parent can understand that, but you had just recently lost your baby, your child, your your love, and so to have that, and then to experience this monster known as Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I, like I said, that's why I, I do, I call you one of the most, the strongest, most courageous women, because I just can't imagine that happening. I, I would have, I would have just folded up and just rolled up in a ball. Uh, well, I did. <laughs> uh, there were times when I certainly did. And then there were other times I would walk the neighborhoods of West Hollywood, um, because I was living at my grandma's house because three and a half weeks after my son died, my grandma died. And then her sister, my great aunt, whose uh, birthday was the same as my son. And she was a poet and a teacher and my inspiration, my soul sister. And the babysitter had had a heart attack in my garage the month before my son died. Then my favorite uncle died. My favorite non blood auntie died. I had an aneurysm after that all within four months i had wow. never been to a funeral i'd never seen a human death i was the little girl who would bury a dead bird and put a headstone and lay flowers and get on her knees and cry and pray over this little dead bird or a caterpillar that i accidentally cut in half because i thought it was a worm and had heard the grown-ups saying that worms regenerate, <laughs> only to discover that <laughs> caterpillars didn't, yes. and then felt remorse. Yeah. You know, and here I was a child, a little teeny child doing that. So, you know, we're talking about moral compasses built in, you know, and that's a normal response. Yes. But for these sociopaths, it isn't. And so so I had all that going on in this short period of time, and I was only 25. And by the time I had my, I was born December 
of 42. So my son died on September 6th of uh, 69, and I didn't turn 26 until December. So I was still 25. And I think, I keep thinking that this didn't happen with Cosby until after I turned 26. But I'm not sure because I was walking underwater. Everything was such a fog at that time. Yeah. He had, he had so much money that he could buy. 500 million. 500, 500 million. He was million. He practically owned NBC. He practically owned William Morris Agency. There were tons and tons of people dependent upon him. And I was told by um, a guy who does a blog uh, or a news thing, um, Tommy Lightfoot Garrett, Highlight Hollywood. And he said that guys' careers in Hollywood were made by supplying Cosby with a steady stream of women. Not just getting a one-time good gig. But their entire careers were made as long as he continued, as long as they continued to supply him with women. And Lou Ferrigno's wife, Carla, was a, a, a pool bunny. She shot pool at the Playboy Club. And she and I were on Dr. Oz together, I don't know, two, two Aprils ago. And she was invited out to dinner with the Cosbys and by this gentleman that had invited her to dinner, who is a very nice man. And she said that after dinner, the Cosbys invited them back to their house and they were shooting pool. And of course she was a sharpshooter. And then all of a sudden, and so she was focusing on her shot and all of a sudden realized that her date had disappeared. And so had Mrs. Cosby. And she remembers asking, Mr. Cosby, well, where, where's your wife? And he told her that she had probably gone to bed. Well, so what wives, I mean, really think about this. How many wives do you know that would leave their husband alone with this gorgeous blonde bunny? Oh, no. This, what is it? Is okay. her name Camille? Is that her name? Camille? Yes. She and was, then, she was an accomplished accomplice to all of this because she saw that bank. She was not going to stop that, that money train. No way. Well, She was his personal manager. She held the purse strings. She knew where every penny went. Wow. So, so here Carla is going, Oh, okay. And then she realized her date was also gone. And she thought, well, maybe he had gone to the men's room. And then Cosby offered her a drink. She said, well, no, I don't drink. And he said, well, how about a glass of water, juice? She said, no, 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 I'm fine. I just want to get this shot. Wow. And all of a sudden, he lunged at her. And she freaked out. She pushed him away. And she said his face changed, turned into like a monster, angry gargoyle face. And he lunged at her again, and she pushed him away and ran down the hallway. And suddenly her date emerged from a side bedroom. Mrs. never showed up, and they got out of there. Now, Tommy had told me that as a young man, now, he was, he was raised in Bel Air. He was warned by Barbara Stanwyck and Betty Davis as a young man 
if he ever went to any of the parties hosted by the Cosbys, never to take anything to drink or to eat. Whoa. From either one of them. So Camille was also making sure that he had the victims. I also have a friend and neighbor who revealed to me that when she woke up from the drugging, she's a singer. She opened for Streisand a few years ago. I mean, and she woke up from the drugging and uh, Mrs. was involved. Now, obviously, this person has been too fearful to go forward and this has never been spoken about. I suppose I could get sued for saying it. I don't know. But she told me what Mrs. was actually doing to her, which was pretty horrific. This and and Mrs. Cosby, after the verdict, after guilty, 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 after he was sent to prison, Mrs. Cosby was trying to equate him with Emmett Till. Oh my god, are you serious? All I could think of was thank god Mrs. Till was dead Dead. because it would have killed her, it damn near killed the rest of us to imagine that poor child what had been done to him. And for this woman to have the, the brazenness to equate this serial rapist, this druggy, drugging monster of a man with this poor innocent child was just unbelievable. And his, his publicist, Andrew Wyatt, has been going out and trying to get him Uh, also equated with Martin Luther King, that he's a political prisoner. And then then Cosby has been, uh, he actually went, he um, has an appeal to appeal his guilty verdict. Now, also, during the last um, situation, you know, before he was sentenced, before the verdict came through as well, the prosecution tried to blackmail the judge twice on two different issues. And they think that they can actually get anybody to, to care about what he has to say. I mean, how do you expect the legal system to do 180 on your verdict if you have it on record that you tried to blackmail the judge? For for folks who are not familiar with the trial, so first of all, like how how long how long is Cosby supposed to be in jail? Three to ten years. He has uh, he was sentenced and put in jail. I believe it was the twenty fifth of September, twenty eighteen. I was there. I saw him walked out in handcuffs, his suspenders, his white shirt, and his baggy pants. And he was shuffling out of the courtroom. They wouldn't let us be stay in the courtroom while he was being handcuffed or being led out. They moved everybody out into the hallway and cordoned it off so that we had to stand behind the tape. And how many victims would you say were there in the in the the courtroom during that verdict? Um, okay, I'll I'll name them: Andrea Constant, who was the woman who was the icon, the shero, the one who 
was the, the, the only one within the statute of limitations that was able to get justice, but her justice was our justice. Yes. Yeah. So Andrea was there. Sindra Ladd was there. Lily Bernard was there. Therese Serenese was there. Um, trying to think who else. Barbara Bowman was not there. Um, I know I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, Sonny Wells was there. Well, well, these are all, and these are women from all different decades as yourself. I mean, we're oh, yeah. talking the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And very important, something that you had mentioned, the, the statute of limitations, which I, this is like still, it, it's still bizarre to me that there ever even was. Oh, can, yeah. you, can you let our listeners know a little bit about that? When, um, what it was prior to the, to the work that, that you all have done, um, what the statute of limitations was on sexual assault and rape before. Well, I don't know. Well, I think it was 12 years in Pennsylvania. And of course, that's where the trial was held. And people have asked me many times, why did they hold it in Pennsylvania? Well, that's where he lived. And that's where Temple University is. And that's where Andrea Constant, she was the director of the women's base, uh, basketball department. And he was on the board um, at Temple University. So this is where it occurred in his mansion, the Cheltenham mansion in Montgomery County. So that's why we had to hold the trial there. So the first trial in 2017, in I think it was June 2017, it was a mistrial. Then uh, in the, the verdict, when the verdict came in guilty, 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 that was in um, April, I think it was April, or June of 2018. And then the sentencing was, there were two days, 24th and 25th of September, 2018. What happened with Andre Constant, I'm gonna just paraphrase like crazy, but um, Castro was the DA in Montgomery County at that time. And he did, it turns out his father was the realtor that helped Cosby buy his Cheltenham mansion. And so when Andrea Constant came forward, and then the seven Jane Doe's, Therese Serenese, Barbara Bowman were some of the, a couple of those, um, they, he, he paid everybody off and he didn't prosecute Cosby, he let him skate. So when Cas, Bruce Castor was up for uh, re-election. Kevin Steele uh, campaigned against him and based his campaign on Castro's um, laxity in prosecuting Cosby and sexual assault. So when Kevin Steele won the election, he immediately realized that Andre Constant's statute of limitations was coming up. And he talked her into going forward again. It was not her idea. He said, look, you, got a, you may have gotten a settlement, but you didn't get justice. Yes. 
you didn't get, you just got bought off basically. And it was swept under the carpet. Yes. And this man, this rapist did not get prosecuted. And he's still, and we, and he's still out. I mean, he, and he still can do it again. Well, no, he, well, yeah. Well, I mean, at that at time, that time at right. That, and, and probably was. Yeah. Everybody said, oh, he's too old. He probably no. can't get it up. But even with Andrea, that was the whole deal. He didn't penetrate her except with his fingers. He gave her what he said were Benadryls because she was having anxiety and symptom, you know, like, like allergy type symptoms. So he drugged and, her till she was uh, out, incapacitated, yeah, and then sexually the, assaulted her. On the her. sofa, on the sofa. And then okay. all of a sudden she woke up and he was penetrating her with his fingers and putting his penis in her hand and masturbating himself. So it didn't matter that he couldn't get it up on his own and actually have sex. I mean, there are many kinds of rape. I mean, it has nothing to do even with the actual physical act. I mean, there's spiritual And he drugged her. And he drugged her. And told her it was something else. And she innocently thought, well, it's, right. And it it's Bill Cosby. It's, yeah, it's everybody's it, dad. Well, and, you see, he was, he was her mentor. Yeah. She was asking him for advice and he was on the board. He was married. And by the way, the thing that hasn't really come up is that she's gay. And if you have seen her picture, doesn't she look like an Amazon? I mean, she's a yes. warrior. She's a warrior. Well, you're all warriors as far as I'm concerned, yeah. But she was not interested in him, and everybody was accusing her, well, what's a girl going to a married man's house for? Well, because she was gay. She wasn't even thinking like that. It wasn't on her radar. That might, and that, that helped the case. Well, but it didn't come out in court. Ah, okay. It was never used in court. If, if more, my... my oh. My question is, too, if more victims come forward, mm-hmm. now that the statute of limitations, because I know, well, that was in, in, I don't know, is it federal or is it just state, but like the extension of the statute? Oh, well, yeah, each state okay. has its own. So each state has to do its own thing. Now, you know, we as uh, the Cosby survivors have really, um, we've taken this platform and we have used it for future generations. We have tried very hard to not just sit there and and wallow in our own sorrow and misery about our situation. We've tried to take it to a higher level and look to future generations, say, what can we really do? None of us were within the statute of limitations. None of us were able to get any money, except there were certain of the women who, Uh, filed a defamation of character suit because Cosby had come out and called them liars. So basically, the majority of us only got our justice through being believed and being able to tell our stories and lend our stories to the validity of what Andrea was saying in court. Right. And that, that, for me, that was enough. That's all I ever went into it for in the first place was to be able to finally tell my story. And the thing that really offended me, and, made, and which was my tipping point, was the fact that Barbara Bowman had been trying to be believed for 30 years about what he did to her. And all it took 
was um, a comedian. A comedian to stand up in a nightclub in, in Philadelphia and make a joke about it, Hannibal Burris. Come on, man, you know, you can stand there and, you know, tell black kids, uh, you know, be an authority, tell black kids how to live and pull up their pants because, hey, man, you had a successful sitcom. We all know Bill Cosby, you're just a rapist. And then suddenly it went viral. And that was my tipping point. I thought a woman can't be believed, but all it takes is a man right. to make a joke about it and it goes viral. Wow, that says so much about our society. Absolutely what it says. You know, I do a spoken word thing. I did with a a group called the the, um, Wholesome Hecklers. And and I wrote a little skit about what a woman's worth was all about. And so I walk out on stage and I'm dressed in my best uh, Beverly Hills matron uh, Armani and every rhinestone and diamond I could... uh, put on me. And I stood there and I told the audience what the stats were. You know, one in four women, uh, one in four, wait a minute, the the rapists are prosecuted one, let me get this straight here. Um, One in four rapists are prosecuted if the victim is female. Three in four rapists are prosecuted if the victim is male. So what does that tell you about a woman's worth in today's society? So I had one of the actors step out acting like Hugh Hefner, taking me by the arm and saying, come, darling, let's come, 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 you know, get off stage, you know, with this trivia. And I said, but darling, I'm just trying to ask the audience, what is the worth of a woman? And one of the wholesome hecklers flew these shutters open and said two pigs 10 chickens and a goat and my hefner person said and i'll take it and they dragged me off stage amidst and i said what about my legacy yes so that's my little skit that i do on occasion, I have others, but that's the one that really, it just, can't, you know how sometimes you have these moments of, of inspiration, somebody wants you to write something or do something, and you don't think for a minute that you have anything going, and then all of a sudden the whole thing comes down it, through, it, through you in a whole package. Yeah, it's divinely, yes, it's, it's yeah. from the universe, God, love, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. It's because you are that vessel, you are that communication, you know, yep. to, to speak it. Um, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I want to also touch on base while we have a little bit of time left too. I want to touch about this idea too about Hollywood and power. We're not just talking Hollywood, talking, you know, politicians, anyone who has um, access to large amounts of money. And the fact that the public is still in, in the dark or in denial, I think really in denial Mm -hmm. that um, there is a huge problem going on with trafficking of girls, um, uh, sex slavery that's, that's happening. It's not stopping and it's not slowing down. And 
if there's some something that you can tell our listeners about what we can do about that. Because again, I think people are living in la-la land, you know, still. Well, I think first of all, we have to educate ourselves. I understand there's an awful lot of trafficking going on in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, Charlotte, North uh, Carolina has a lot of trafficking. Apparently so, which really surprised me because both of my daughters and my grandchildren now live there as of about three years ago. And I'm thinking about retiring near my children and grandchildren. And around Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I gave the keynote speech, that was one of the reasons I was there, because there is a lot of trafficking. And I think so many times traffickers target um, areas where people are not as perhaps sophisticated or and tr- or, alert, and, uh, or on alert trusting right mm-hmm. right They're more trusting and and by the way um i have been informed um that all of the big sports events that happen yeah it is known that's where all the traffickers they start bringing in all the girls for all the athletes all of the all of the, the guys from out of town all of the uh organizers the of all the, the money. events. All the That's money. where all the money is in the concentrated event. And they bring them in. And there are quite often very young girls. And this is happening. Everybody knows about it. And what's being done? And I think we have to start with the children, with our children. We have to teach them, what is it Reagan used to say? Trust, but verify. Yeah, You know, we don't want to turn our kids into these suspicious beings so that they don't trust the good in humanity, because that's what takes us to the next level. That's what keeps us doing the good works that we must do in society. But we have to, we have to teach them to have a critical eye. Yes. And to be sensitive. Uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, PhD, she wrote a wonderful book called Women Who Run With the Wolves. And she took all of the fairy tales and taught, uh, told the story of the fairy tales in the sense of how women have been programmed. And one of them was the Hansel and Gretel story and following the breadcrumbs and how Gretel was carrying her doll. And the doll kept telling her, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Well, the doll was the symbol of your intuition. So the, the, the idea that we have been taught as women that are intuitive is something just kind of la-la land, you know, is, is just not to be believed. It's coming from our hyster area, hysteria, right? Right. That it's just emotional. It has no basis in reality. It's not black and white, linear, provable, verifiable. It's our, uh, but it's data. our gut instinct. It's our gut instinct, and it's what we are excel at. Exactly, and that's because we, as women, are able to access our right brain, which is spatial concepts and all of that stuff, and our left brain more easily than men. Men tend to be more left brain black and white linear thinkers and logic and all that. But we can access both much more easily. Men have difficulty accessing the right side. And so they dispute it and they discredit it. 
because they can't access it. They don't feel it. And, it be, and we are taught to also discredit it and deny it. If I had listened to my intuitive on more than one occasion, including running out to the pool when I felt this overwhelming urge to hug my child, maybe I wouldn't have found him face down on the bottom of the deep end at six years old, just turned six, you know? But in my head, I heard my mother say, oh, you're just too emotional. Because women of that generation bought into that whole thing as well. They and did. we have been told, don't trust your intuitive. So now we are charged with teaching our women, children, trust your intuitive, listen. And we have to charge ourselves with listening. Listening, not just here, but here. We have to listen to our children. Encourage that, in, that communication that there's nothing that your child cannot come to you about. Exactly. That the, 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 the days of a child should be what, seen and not heard and all of that. No, 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 no. Because you're teaching your child to hold it in, to hold it in. And they need to let you know, you know, if Uncle Robbie was getting a little too close to them. Or dropping your drawers and saying, here, wash it for me. <laughs> Going, yes. huh? Yes. We need yeah. to that, that happened to me when I was five years old, and I'd never seen a man naked before. This was the, the dear uncle, you know, who, who took me to Central Park every day to, to roller skate. It's always and the ones that give you that bike at Christmas too, right? <laughs> so psychologically also what it does to a young child's mind it's 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 absolute it's it's the worst thing you can do because any child wants to have a new bike for christmas oh my god i got a new bike yeah but then mm -hmm. i have to deal with this other stuff that i don't really like and i think i don't feel good and i yeah it's very confusing and it sets up a child for so much uh, you know, when when I got shipped out to California from Connecticut, New York, um, at 18, summer of 61, my mother put an old boyfriend of hers who had been singing in the USO chorus with her during World War II. So he was dear Uncle Rene. And so when I got dumped out in California with my grandmother, he started, he was chosen to take me around and introduce me to everybody and show me LA and all of this stuff. He used to introduce me to his friends as his little, his demi-mondain. Well, I didn't, I, I thought, you know, I was 18, I was trying to be so sophisticated and I thought it was a compliment. I thought he was saying that I was his sophisticated little niece, you know. I didn't realize until years later that a demi-mondain was kind of like his little whore. Oh. And then when he would take me back to grandma's house in West Hollywood, the, the house that I had been taken home to from the hospital when I was born that my great-great-uncle built, when there was nothing but a footpath from Sunset Boulevard to that house in the early 1900s, he would park in front of the house, and I, as I got out of the car, he'd try to give me the hug and stick his tongue down my throat. And so then, when I shoved him away, and then I got my own little apartment, he came one day, and he wound up saying, he, he was knocking on the door, and I didn't want to see him. 
I was so upset, you know, I didn't even open the door. And he walked up the back stairs. I was renting this little apartment underneath this old Jewish woman's house. She and her old spinster daughter lived upstairs, quiet neighborhood. And he walked up the stairs and he pushed my window, my kitchen windows open, which were right over my kitchen sink, and stuck his foot into my kitchen sink and said, give me back that dress and that necklace that I bought you. And I was so shocked. I'd been taking a nap. And I just, I couldn't believe it. I just, I, I was speechless. And I was terrified. And I went and I got the dress. And it was a little kind of girly, you know, little girl dress, you know, kind of a soft, dusty rose and a necklace of, of multicolored corn kernels on a, you know, and I went and I handed it to him and he took the dress and he broke the necklace and scattered the corn kernels all across my kitchen floor. He said, I'm going to give this to a virgin. Oh my God. Out. Oh, yeah. oh. And, and one thing after another, and that all of that just kept setting me up for when Luis Valentino showed up in my life and took over. I was feeling so isolated and so rejected and, and had nowhere to turn. And Luis, because that's what con men and pimps and they see an opportunity. that's what they do. They, they see a lost little girl. So this is the importance of raising our daughters to be strong, independent, and also to have those lines of communication with us as much as possible because there are, Absolutely. let's be honest, we don't want to frighten them, but there are predators out there and the predators, they don't, they're not going to look like somebody with a long trench coat. You know, they can look like your neighbor. They can look like your, like a family member. They can look like somebody's wife, right? right. So not just men. Yeah. So yeah. we need to do that. Um, Victoria, we're, we're out of time for today's show, but I want to have you back on because I just adore you. And I think that the work that you do is so important for, for, for so many victims, um, in this world. So would you please come back? Would you promise me to come back? I would love to come back. And may I just say one last quick thing? Of course. Parents, parents, never give up on your children. You know them, trust them encourage them to to tell you everything and believe them believe them and love them and embrace them do not throw them away no matter what thank you victoria thank you so much and if people want to find out more about you or to get in touch with you and support the work that you do i know you have so many different programs that you're working on on behalf of victims everywhere they can find you on Facebook, right? They can. Yes, they can. They and can. on LinkedIn as well. It's Victoria, LinkedIn. You know, and, and Instant Messenger. You can always contact me. Beautiful. Yeah. I just, I love you so much. I love you so much. I'm giving you a big hug, a big virtual hug. A virtual hug back. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and we will, we will have you back on. And folks, um, I will also in this video. We want you to share this. If, if. If you were moved, if you were touched, and you think that this can help someone, please share the video uh, of this podcast. It's extremely important, and it's super easy to do. You just click share, put it on your social media. I want to thank you all for listening and or viewing, 
And until next time, I want to remind you, as always, to think outside of that damn box. We've got to do that. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. <laughs>